This is Global News Watch. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and Paramilitary Operations Officer for the CIA and current National Security and Defense Analyst for ABC News, Mick Mulroy, joins the Media Mavens podcast for a monthly review of global events and their impact in our lives. And here is the host of Global News Watch, the CEO of Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, your host for Media Mavis Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Marjorie DeHay. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's another podcast day. I love that we are covering some of the global stuff right now. All of the podcasts that have been on leadership, which has been transitioned over to global leadership of what's going on in the world, because everything that's going on is affecting us here in the United States from supply chain and so forth. And so I'm super excited that we have... Mick Mulroy coming back on, who is a national security defense analyst for ABC, but former deputy assistant secretary of defense for the Middle East and paramilitary operations officer for the CIA. So Mick, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. I need to find you. I have such mad respect for you since we've been having you on our show. Oh my God, for almost nine months now. And I still trip over the super long title you have. It is such an impressive title. So I don't want to like cut it short, but I always trip over it even to this day. (laughs) Sounds like a guy who couldn't keep a job. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to add a few more CIAs, military and whatnot. But I'm glad to have you on. I know we were just chatting with you and you were running a few, you know, ABC and international interviews. You are like the go-to guy for everything global of military and tensions right now. And you've been covering a lot on the Ukraine-Russia situation. I know we've had you on the past two months of Global News Watch has been watching this whole thing unfold. I think what Mark and I are interested in right now is kind of getting an update from you of what's going on because we know Russia's in Ukraine. It's been, what, two months, three months now? And then we talked about this, the fact that Ukraine has survived. The president is still alive and still fighting and leading. This is considered a win for Ukraine, the fact that they're still fighting. But I want to know, is Russia starting to pull back right now because it's been so long? Or do you think we're just now into a different hunker down and strategize a different direction with this war? Well, Sarah, it looks like we're moving into the second phase of the war. The first phase, Russia really focused on the capital, uh, Kyiv, and they were repelled, quite frankly, by the Ukrainians. So there's a lot of military analysts who had predicted that the Russians would essentially take Ukraine in a matter of days, longest weeks. And that's not the case. So the first part of this invasion was a failure by the Russians for multiple reasons. Their troops just are not competent and are not motivated. And they had a very difficult time even keeping up with the logistics. So the second phase essentially means that they've given up on their first objective of the capital. And now they're focused on gaining any kind of territory in the Far East in a region called the Donbass, and likely to continue to go across the coast of Ukraine to try to create a land bridge from Russia to Crimea, and even all the way up to Moldova, which is very troubling. But they're not making much advantage or advances on either of those two fronts either. I mean, I know when you said they've done a bad job, they kind of just are giving up. Do you think the mental give up is because a lot of the Russians and the military aren't following Putin's lead. They don't believe they should be there. They know they can't be there. I mean, do you think a lot of this 
lot because we know Russia has a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of military support within their country. But do you think it's because we they know they shouldn't be there, don't want to be there? That's why they're kind of not pulling back, but kind of lagging a little bit on the charge ahead like they were the first week or two? Yeah, I think that's that's a fair statement. So most of them are conscripts. So they didn't even want to be in the army, let alone go invade another country. And quite frankly, to a culture that's very similar to that. So when they see these, uh, it's hard to believe how brutal they've been. But uh, essentially, when they see an old woman, it looks like their grandma, talks like their grandmother, dresses like their grandmother, which is why it's so baffling that they could be so brutal and violent toward innocent civilians. But a lot of these uh, conscripts, didn't want to be in the army, let alone go fight in a war. And, uh, you know, the, the estimates vary, but essentially it's either between it's 10 to 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed already. And if you put that into context, we had 7,000, just over 7,000 killed in Afghanistan and Iraq combined over the entirety of 20 years. So we're talking, you know, a couple months, a few months into this, and they've lost potentially up to 15,000 so it's 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 astonishing, quite frankly. And I think we're up to like nine generals now that have been killed. I mean, that's that's unheard of. So I mean, of course, they're getting a lot of help, the Ukrainians, but their their will to fight, I think, is also a significant factor in the uh, lack of success that we've seen by the Russians. Zelensky said, you know, his whole thing was in the beginning, I'm saying goodbye, got my family out. You know, if you don't see me again in four days, he was convinced this is going to be a fight to the death and he wasn't going to see the first week through. Now he's becoming more vocal. He's more visible on TV as a leader, like saying we're fighting, we're not going. I mean, he is adamant they're going to win this. And I know to Marjorie's point, I think earlier, just that swell of support, seeing that kind of leadership is tremendous. And the U.S. is now doing another round of ammunition and military equipment over to them just because it seems like everybody was kind of stuck in the middle not really playing switzerland but trying to sort this out but it seems like we've taken the stand to be 100 percent support ukraine at any cost now versus earlier when people were still not sure which side to take yeah so president Zelensky's leadership in this i think has been a significant factor in the ukrainians belief that they could win this and quite frankly their tenacity in the fight i think it comes from him as an example, right? So we saw Afghanistan, President Ghani was out for the first plane smoking and the military collapsed. President Zelensky literally refused a ride by the United States to just send me ammunition. So that's the difference in the two leaders there. And I think his example has really, has really motivated the Ukrainian people. We do, I think, now assess that, and, and this has been stated by Secretary Austin today, that the Ukrainians can win. And I don't think he's saying that just, you know, to be a cheerleader, so to speak. I think the intelligence assessment is shifting. And we are now, I mean, the Ukrainians now have more tanks than the Russians do. I mean, who would have thought that? Partly because they've abandoned, Russians have abandoned tanks, and there were Ukrainians who picked them up. So in the massive amount of weapon systems that are going in there from the U.S. and NATO are really bringing the Ukrainians up to the par with the Russians as far as, like, capacity. But now it all comes down to the will to fight and the, and, the, and the skill in the fight. And the Ukrainians switched to our model of warfare about a decade ago, where they went from the Soviet-Russian model of generals make every decision, soldiers follow. It's a very top-down. That's not the Western military model. It's certainly not the U.S. We trust our junior officers. 
We have staff NCOs and NCOs, you know, senior enlisted, and they're empowered to make decisions. So the Ukrainians make decisions at the cyclic rate compared to the Russians, which takes forever because they have to have a very senior officer make it. I think you're seeing the two philosophies of warfare play out in Ukraine, and it's the Western philosophy, I think, is the most successful. You know, there's been news about, like, China's supposed neutrality and all of this and discussions on where China sits, because obviously if China enters this, it, it does become a bigger war on a global level. You're one of the experts on this subject. So where do you think China lies now? Because China has been a traditional ally, and we've spoken of this before, of Russia. Yeah, Mike, I think China absolutely hates this war, right? So China is unlike Russia. You know, we lots of times we pair the two because our two highest adversaries. Russia seems, and it's obvious, loves to meddle in conflict, right? They're in Syria, they're in Lebanon, they uh, live Libya, excuse me, and they've obviously invaded Ukraine. But before that, it was Georgia. Before that, it was another part of Ukraine. They've constantly. China is not about that. China is about expanding its economic base, building its ties around the world. Yes, they want to expand their military, but it's tied to their economic expansion, their one belt, one road philosophy. So they don't want to see this because it's disrupting international markets left and right. And that's not what they want to see. However, they do have a partnership, if you will, an alliance of some sort with Russia. And and they have been purchasing Russian oil to try to make up for all the sanctions that were imposed on the West. I don't see China joining anything when it comes to a military. Obviously, if they did, you're right, that would be a huge problem. Uh, But it's not in their own interest. I think it's further and further away from likelihood because they see how bad Russia's done. You know, you generally don't want to back a loser. I mean, if Russia had, you know, gone through there in a blitzkrieg and taken over the country, as horrendous as that would be, and is totally against all international laws and norms, I mean, at least China would be backing a, a winner, so to speak, you know, in the terms of the battle. But now they can see, you know, you might not want to, you might want to be so tight with a country that has proven that their military is essentially a paper tiger. So I think they're in a dilemma of not wanting to be vocally. They just generally want to stay out. But if they stop buying oil from Russia, Russia's got a big problem. Well, Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State, said China is refusing to take a stand on the invasion because it's going to create significant reputational risk for Beijing, which is one of their main city and ports. Do you think that's why they're backing off a little bit just because they have their own political reasons. They're playing the long game. They always have been with the U.S. Yeah, so they always play the long game. It's one of the advantages China has over us. I mean, the West, for example, we have like election cycles. So we, we can plan out strategic ideas, whether it's national military strategy or, excuse me, national security strategy, event strategy, et cetera. But it's generally almost a four-year scenario. China's like 100 years out, right? Because they have... One president for life, and you know, obviously he's a dictator more than a president, and they can plan out. So obviously we don't want that type of system. We want our representative democracy. But from the point of view of strategic planning, China has an advantage. So they're, they, because they can plan out for long, long periods of time. They don't want to be bogged down in the war, even rhetorically. That's why they're refusing to really commit one way or another. I think they just wish it would go away. They probably will get more and more pressure to cut purchasing. It's not just oil, but it's also natural gas that uh, Russia produces. 
And, and I think that we should pressure him. One of Henry Kissinger's main efforts during the Cold War was to separate the Soviets, now the Russians, from the Chinese. And I think that's what we should be doing now. We should be showing the Chinese just how not in their interest it would be to even tacitly support the Russian efforts here. The other issue, of course, is, or not of course, but Ukraine and Russia produce about one third of the grain that the world consumes. And I was reading the other day, that's 12% of the calories worldwide. So the longer this goes on, the less likely they'll be able to produce anything, the less likely people will purchase any of it. it can, it's going to have a massive effect on the price of food worldwide. And of course, that's going to disproportionately affect developing countries because they can't, I mean, if a developed countries are spending so much more on food, they're going to have a lot less money to spend to help developing countries. And as the refugee problem, I think we're now at 5 million that is flooded into Europe and it's predicted to go to 8 to 10 million, that costs all these same countries a lot of money to take up. So there's going to be a lot less money available, if you will, worldwide for all sorts of issues. It's going to, this is going to impact the world in so many different ways. Well, I think it's already impacting everybody. I mean, fuel charges for flying has all airlines have raised their rates 40% since January to right now. And so it's, we're starting to look at the gas, at least in California, it's up to I think six or like $7. I mean, we're already seeing it. And when I was looking at this, I know Russia's refusing halting gas to Belarus, to Poland, to all these other areas that have not, you know, he just, he's going outside of Ukraine now. And if I think this is correct, because I know the rubles lost their value. There's no dollars in Russia that because Poland refuses to pay in rubles, which is what Putin wants, it's in breach of European Union, of the EU rules and regulations and sanctions if they pay in rubles. So they're not paying at all, which is why they're being cut off. Is that an accurate statement? So my knowledge is there's still there is still energy being purchased by Europe. And it is, you know, the criticism, but you know, I'll I'll explain both sides. Obviously, it's easier for people who don't rely on Russian energy to criticize those that do, but they can't necessarily be off it immediately. They certainly should have a plan to completely wean themselves from Russian energy over time, whether it's building nuclear plants like France has done or whatever other means they have, you know, increasing uh, production and else in other places. But that can't happen immediately. The only thing that can really happen immediately is Saudi Arabia and UAE can increase to meet these demands. So that's the problem is that they don't necessarily, like Germany, for example, have the ability to just jump right off of it. But there's going to be more and more pressure on them not to purchase energy from, from Russia because it's essentially paying for the fight. I mean, it's almost a wash. It costs them the same amount that they get from Europe a day as it does to, to carry out this war in Ukraine. So it certainly is it's no easy answers, but it's going to be more and more complicated Putin can can threaten to cut them off because he thinks that that's a, a threat and it is. But then, like, who's buying it? Then it's just China and other countries buying his his uh, energy, and he needs money. The, the Russian economy is energy, energy, and energy. So there, you know, as Senator McCain used to say, it's a gas station with an army. That's what they have. So if they can't sell it, they don't make any money, and they can't fund their military. So there's there's a lot going to be a lot of pressure on countries to stop buying any energy from from Russia. Where are we at with the nuclear 
on this because, I mean, we are completely cutting off Russia. A lot of big brands have already pulled out. I know a few companies, a big agency, Publicis, had seven offices there. They had to shut it down, but they paid everybody six months severance just so they had a chance to live because nobody's able to come and go from this country. If we keep supplying Ukraine, things are getting cut off, the sources. Do you think there is this chance that Putin will turn to nuclear arms against the U.S. or anybody else that is continuing to support Ukraine? Or is that really, is that just chatter or is there any concerns that that could be a realistic future for us? Well, I think it is primarily chatter. Uh, We saw Foreign Minister Lavrov make statements today that because we're supporting Ukraine, that it increases the chances of a nuclear war. I mean, the bottom line is if Russia didn't invade a sovereign country, we would have to support that sovereign country, defend itself against Russia. So if they want to end any chance of a nuclear war, they just try to withdraw from the country they invaded. Nuclear war, it's irresponsible for somebody of his stature to even be talking about it. He's supposed to be that the lead diplomat, you know, not a warmongering uh, of the worst kind. But nobody wins. I mean, the Russians have over 7,000 nuclear weapons. We have around 6,000. Obviously, our NATO partners add to that. But nobody wins. It is. It, it would be a disaster. Uh, it would decimate the world economy. All countries would be either affected by the economic fallout or the actual fallout, you know, radioactive fallout. So it is a god-awful thing to talk about. I think Russia is probably talking about it also because the whole their incompetence when it comes to their military is on full display. So the paper tiger is uh, shredded. And, you know, before this conflict started, they were considered one of the top militaries in the world. Now we can see they can't, they can't even take over one of the most the poorest countries in Europe, their military, which, I mean, they've lost their flagship. I mean, this is this is a relatively small part, but it's indicative. They lost their flagship of their black fleet in a land war to a country that doesn't even have a navy. So think about that for a second, right? They have proven that their military is completely incompetent. So, but what do they go to? We have a lot of news. So yes, and that's and that's a viable threat, obviously, because nobody wants a nuclear war. But that's why they keep bringing it up. So that, in the fact that doctrinally, they can use a tactical nuclear weapon as if it's a conventional weapon, whereas in the U.S., it's all stop, no military uniformed commander, no matter how many stars they have, can just elect to go to a nuclear option. They have to. Stop, go to the president, president makes a decision. Under the Russian military doctrine, a ground commander like Dvornikov right now could decide to use a tactical nuke in, say, Mariupol. Now, we've already sent a strong message that if they use a tactical nuke, they got a problem because the US and NATO will probably become involved. So we've sent them a clear message, but whether they heed it is another. It's like, you remember, like, it's like when you see those people, the game of chicken where they're in the cars in the road and they just speed up head on to see which one veers off left. I feel like this is now becoming that with Putin. He's just going to keep pushing as far as he could, like full force to see if anybody's backs off. But at the end of the day, he's going to probably be the one who is going to have to the humility. Like he wasn't. I think it's the power of the money. He's had such control to rule his country and others. He was never really equipped to do what he was pushed to do. And I, I think it's a lot of it. Like you said, it's ego. It's just, I, we don't, I mean, people are saying, you know, he's getting older. There is mental issues. He's just not right. There is no reason behind 
the push forward on this? Because my concern is what if he is pushed to his back against the wall and that's his only option out, you know, is it is nuclear. And, right. you know, at that point, it's like, did we push it too far? So, I mean, I guess if we were pushing into Russia, that would be a good argument. The simple fact is we're pushing back against his invasion. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no way the West is going to say, oh, you threaten us with a nuclear weapon. So go ahead and decimate in a country, kill civilians, and, you know, just simply because you threatened us with nuclear weapons. That, I mean, the one thing that people have become very clear about is if you ever show Putin weakness, he goes for it. So all the people that said, don't, you know, don't expand NATO, don't do this. Well, I mean, if Ukraine would have been in NATO right now, this wouldn't be happening. So every appeasement we made has actually created a scenario where he thinks he could do things like this. So, it, I mean, we shouldn't be the chest thumpers. We shouldn't be the ones like egging him on. But we can't also not show weakness because if we do, that's what gets him to do this. He'll go on to Moldova. If we stop supporting the Ukrainians, they would likely fall because they just wouldn't have the bottom line. They don't have the ammunition. Right. I mean, you can't fight if you don't have ammunition. So if we just stopped it and he took Ukraine, what would keep him from going to Moldova? Why not? Right. The West is both, you know. So I don't think we should rhetorically be hanging him on talking about nuclear weapons and who's who and who's got a you know a bigger button or whatever the thing was with the past administration. That doesn't matter. We all have nuclear weapons. It would be horrific for all of us. But we have to support the Ukrainians. They're our partners. And quite frankly, inspiration. You know, if there's anything right now that's that's come out of this, it's been a lot of just abject misery and just human suffering. But the inspiration of the Ukrainians essentially agreeing as a culture that they're going to go down together fighting rather than just give up is inspirational. And I think the world should support that against the Russians. And I think everyone agrees it's been this Ukrainian spirit that has really kept this going. One of the questions I wanted to kind of touch on is there's been a lot of discussion on war crimes and how Russia has not followed the rules of war. And I think that's really important. We're talking about civilians being trapped, not being able to let go, bombing schools, hospitals, et cetera. How does that get reconciled after this? What happens? I mean, would they actually hold Putin on like a war crimes trial? It's possible, Max, because one, you're right. I mean, it, it's essentially not a military campaign. It is a series of war crimes just tied together. They get around a city. They bombard the civilian areas of the city. Sometimes it's not even a military target within miles and miles. So that act is a war crime. One, that's all they're doing. They're just attacking civilians. They want to get them to flee. They want to kill them. They want to just chase them out. So, I mean, it isn't just the U.S. media saying that. This is every media outlet that's in Ukraine for recording this real time. They are mass graves of civilians, shot in the back of the head, tied up. There's rape. There is just butchery. It is, I mean, it's all on the news. You can see it. And it, it's, it's not like it's a secret. So they have to do a full investigation, the international Criminal courts has already started an investigation. You know, I don't think it's going to be difficult to build a case because, you know, a lot of militaries have issues where soldiers, you know, make terrible decisions and sometimes it's intentional. It's on the country to hold them accountable. You have to prosecute. If you do not and you lie about it, then the, the, the responsibility goes all the way to the top. Right. If you're if you're basically ordering your troops or willfully ignoring mass murder of civilians, 
and sexual violence against females, you're responsible for it, as if you did. So I think the ICC is going to build a huge case, but then it's going to come down to, you know, the, we're not even in the ICC. Uh, we'd be in the U.S., but Russia isn't either. But that doesn't mean they can't investigate, have a trial, and if they won't turn people over, which they won't, uh, try them in, in absentia, you know, in their own absence, and then convict them. And then my take would be the international community should say, turn these people over, even after the war's over, or the sanctions don't completely come off. There's got to be a, an accountability here. This is this is fighting a war like it was in the, the medieval ages. And, you know, we should never have that type of warfare. But this is 2022. And we've got people, soldiers, which are not even soldiers, they're just uh, criminals, essentially, just brutalizing civilians as if they're combatants. And it's it's completely unacceptable. And the, the, the international community needs to hold them responsible and maybe even have, you know, a tribunal like we did at the end of World War II. But whether Putin will ever be actually held responsible, that's up to the Russian people. Perhaps they would eventually decide on a new ruler and turn him over uh, to this international tribunal like we've done with the leaders of Nazi Germany, but we've done with like in Serbia, you know, Milosevic, and maybe Putin will be the next one. But certainly, I think we should all hope that they do a full investigation and try people that have been responsible for this up the chain of command to the top. To Marjorie's point, Mick, I I know this is the first time in history it's ever happened. He was removed from the, or Russia was removed from the Human Rights Council of reports of gross systematic violations, abusive human rights, Marjorie. And to your point, it's, this has never happened before. And he was removed from that role for the first time in history, a seat that nobody could just walk away, get fired from or removed from, but he was removed because of this. So is that going to have an impact against Marjorie's point of bringing him to justice for all these war crimes? Or does that is that a separate thing that we need to clarify a little bit more? So I certainly think it was obviously a good step. I mean, the idea that somebody who's their country who's conducting the worst human rights violations in our lifetime would be on the UN Human Rights Council. Unfortunately, that happens a lot. You'll see a lot of countries that have the abysmal human rights records being on that council. But this, so to your point, this shows that even amongst the abysmal countries of the world, Russia is in a special class. Russia gets to be removed. Uh, I would hope, although I don't see it happening because it's very complicated, that they would be removed as a permanent member of the Security Council for the U.S. Because permanent members, one of which the United States is one of them, has an ability to veto all, all sorts of things. And so they veto every attempt of the UN to investigate Russia. It's very difficult. It has to be like a general assembly vote. I'm not an expert on the UN, but it's unlikely. Although I think we should keep doing it until we actually have enough votes to remove Russia from, as a permanent member of the Security Council. That would be a huge blow because that's where they have most of their influence, being in that very exclusive group in the United Nations. But the thing is, though, for you to be tried in The Hague for war crimes, that means Putin has to leave his home, his country. He's not going to step outside of Russia right now. He knows as soon as he does. He has no rights. So it's going to be hard to your Marjorie's point. Yes, he's guilty. Yes, this is a horrible situation. He needs to be tried. But the problem is we can't walk in to pull him out of Russia. He's not going to step out. So yeah, publicly, yeah, like you said, by absentee, but it's not 
going to make a difference to somebody of that mental incapacity of where he's at because he knows as long as he doesn't step outside of Russia, he's untouchable by any, you know, that's what's concerning to me on this as well, because, and I read this, which is astounding to me that the polls are showing support for him that they've surged since the invasion. And I don't know if that's because he's controlling what's media, what's being sent out or not, but the Kremlin's now weighing on suspending the regional elections because of the concerns, growing concerns of economic costs, standards of living's decline. Is this part of overall Russia starting to realize that maybe they need to try to remove him? Or do you think this is just more spin coming from the Kremlin to try to shape perceptions and stay in control of the people in Russia? Because his support, his the numbers at the polls, it shouldn't be surging right now with him, and they are. Right. I've seen the same reports on the polls. I think part of it is those polls are not necessarily accurate, but people I know that follow it say, well, they might not be accurate, but if it shows the trend in one direction, that's probably true. So, and then you, you nailed it, I think. Part of it is they only see what the state wants. Them to see. They have one media outlet, of course. They're still playing this ridiculous idea that they're trying to liberate Ukraine from Nazi, you know, Jewish president, for Christ's sake. It's like, it's a Jewish president. Like, they're not run by Nazis. They're uh, President Zelensky. I think he had uh, his, his grandfather and his grand and great four great uncles. Four great uncles were all killed in concentration camps, you know, and his, his grandfather was the only that survived. You know, so the whole thing's ridiculous. It's there to liberate. You know, but they think that a lot of this is the only thing they see on their media. So there's a little of that. But part of it, I think, in at first, I think there was some sympathy for the Russian people because they are the ones who get hurt in this, right? So their kids, especially the poor ones, it's their kids that are conscripts that are just getting chewed up. And they're not even bringing their, their, their bodies back, by the way. It's almost unheard of in any military in history that you just send your forces in, they die, and they don't even try to bring them back. It's the Ukrainians that are burying them. It's Ukrainians that are taking pictures of them to try to find their parents. Think about that one. Now, the Russian army, they don't care. So there is some sympathy, I think, uh, and I obviously don't speak for the international community, but there's some sympathy. But if it's true that, they, that there's an organic support inside Russia to attack a country right next door and kill civilians, then that sympathy is going to go further and further down. And if the fact that it hurts the Russian economy, uh, most of the world's going to be like, it's on them to remove President Putin. You know, we're not going to do it. We don't we don't have a regime change policy. Eventually, it's going to be on the Russians and they can. You know, it's been done before in Russia. And especially if he loses and it becomes really obvious to the Russian people that he has lost this in addition to throwing away the lives of, you know, by then 30,000 Russian soldiers, perhaps. It's going to become a more and more problem politically for, for Putin in Russia. We're not there now, to your point. I don't really understand how they could support any of this. But again, I, I don't live in Russia and I'm not just, I don't hear one media source nonstop. I, I do think there is a yeah. lot of support, though. There's a lot of sympathy for the Russians. I mean, it's not just affecting Ukraine and it's affecting us. Sorry, Margie. It's just, but the sympathy is there because this is affecting the people in Russia. It's affecting people that don't that fire they don't have jobs like you said they're losing their kids in a war that's this unprecedented nobody the point of the military the ukrainians are taking the photos they're bearing them out of respect i mean there has got to be so much more support than i think we're seeing and hearing about but 
how much can these Russians do when they're living in poverty, when they're being brainwashed, when they're terrified of the repercussions? I just think this is going to be a much bigger issue and harder for them to get rid of Putin. But it sounds to me that some of this is coming from inside the Kremlin that the concerns of keeping him in office. But like you said, I think it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard few years on that country and the people in general. And that's where I think I have sympathy for the people who can't get out. They can't survive there because they're being handcuffed to a country ruled by a lunatic. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. On that, well, this war has been started. It's obviously been going on and Putin doesn't have global support. How is a way that he could actually end this war without, you know, losing his basically without losing face on a global level? Is there a solution that he could walk away with this and still maintain some semblance of leadership? Yeah, I think that's the big trick for the diplomats is try to come up with something that is enough for him to be able to claim a victory, but not really be a victory, but in the war. Right. Because a ceasefire certainly is what we should all want. I mean, there's innocent children being killed. In this, so I don't know how else anybody. That's all you need to know. Right. So the diplomats, the negotiators are need to find a way to deal with, you know, Putin's ego so he can believe he's won something, even if it's just some territory in the Donbass. The problem is, as the Ukrainians get strong, it's not a problem, but it's a good problem. Ukrainians get stronger and stronger. They're going to want Russia out of their country entirely. So they already had Crimea, right? The whole peninsula. They unlawfully took it. And it's not recognized by any country in the world, even China. But, I mean, the Ukrainians might be, well, hell. I mean, if they push everybody, all the Russians out of the east part of the country back into Russia, I mean, if we were Ukrainians, we'd probably go, let's go to Crimea. Let's get our country back. Like, so he might not only lose, he might lose, lose. And then, you know, what does he do there? Does he go to a nuclear weapon? Does he, I don't know what he does. He's unpredictable. And, you know, in their system, he's an absolute dictator, right? So we talk about it being an oligarchy. It's not an oligarchy. They have rich billionaires that essentially looted the Russian people and, and Putin keeps money in, but it's not an oligarchy. It's a dictatorship completely. Putin has 100% control. So if he is mentally off, then their actions were reflected. He now, he must have had some issue inside of the internal service because it's been widely reported he purged hundreds and hundreds of FSB officers. That's their former KGB, where he came from, internally. And if you're doing that, that probably would indicate that there was some kind of movement against them. So if that would have been successful, then we would have seen a different scenario. But you don't just purge, and by Russian standards, that means they're flying out of windows and stuff that many people inside your own internal service unless there was a problem. So I do think there's some indication that there's problems going on in Russia, but it is going to be very difficult to try to give Putin a face-saving way out of this, especially as poor as his military is Well, I think he's proven, like the Ukrainians, it's, it's such admirable because they're going to fight to the end. They can protect their country, their people, their land. I mean, so much overwhelming support. I think Putin's going to do that. He's just going to fight until the end to destroy as many lives and whatever he could do to prove he has control. And they're, they're, you know, they're saying that the Kremlin's talking about they want Ukraine broken up into separate states 
and countries now. And it's just, I feel like it's just kind of desperate attempt to throw something against the wall to see what sticks now, because I think they're starting to realize this is getting bad. Over 830 million Ukrainian refugees before the end of this year is what the numbers are looking at to leave Ukraine. And this is going to be a massive amount. Yeah. It's a lot. It's not a huge country, but I just think maybe Putin's idea is drive them out and take over. It's just it's hard to predict where he's going with this. But I don't see from what I've been reading. I don't think he's going to give up. I think it's just going to keep strategizing to figure out how much damage he could do until somebody else gives up first. That's where I think what's scary, because all the human lives ahead of us that are going to be lost because of this for no reason. And then the rest of the world's already starting to feel the effects from imports, exports. I mean, I know, you know, it took me almost five, six weeks to get a door for my car in an accident. Should have taken one week. They can't get metals over from Germany, from Europe quick enough to replace cars. We are all starting to feel the effects here of what's going on over there. And that doesn't mean, hey, it's not our problem. That's their problem. It's too bad. This is becoming a global humanitarian problem. And that's why I want to see more humanitarian support to the people over there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all these refugees are going to have to be taken care of, right? They were forced to leave their homes, and now they're living, you know, with nothing but their backpack and the possessions they had in that backpack. So it's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to cost the world an incredible amount of money, definitely. And it really comes down to the decision of one man. So there's yeah. no way the Ukrainians are going to give up. In fact, they're they've turned the tide. So uh, there's no end in sight. I think that's one of the things that's very clear, uh, clear here. There's no end in sight. NATO and the United States view this as a way to deplete uh, Russia's capability down, down. I mean, we, how much money do we spend on our national security to be prepared to go up against Russia? And here we have an advantage or we have an opportunity to deplete them militarily. Like they're, they're losing. I mean, they've lost over 800 tanks, 800 tanks. Uh, and we're only, uh, you know, a couple of months into this. So their military is, he's going to get to a point where he, he is, doesn't have enough, a competent, capable, military period because of the depreciation that he's taking in Ukraine. So there's no way Ukrainian is going to stop. There's no way that NATO and U.S. is going to stop uh, giving them the weapons, more and more advanced weapons as they learn to use them. So this, there is no end in sight, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's, it's sad what's going on over there. What's interesting, on last note, Mick, on the financial side, I know I saw that the commodities and their stock the market's up in Russia. Is there, where is the correlation, if any, to that? Or do you think that's just more hyper spin coming out of Russia? So I don't understand our stock market, so <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to ask. So I don't know why. I mean, it's sometimes, you know, and I bring that up because oftentimes we think our stock market's going to go down and it goes up. And yeah. and I don't know what it is based on, you know, maybe a belief in something that, that either is not true or is so I don't know. But I, I think the economy of Russia is going to get worse and worse and worse. The sanctions alone, also the export control, right? So they can't even build stuff anymore because they can't get like microchips. They can't get, they can't even replace the weapon systems they're getting, they're losing in Ukraine. They can't even fly around their own country anymore because they fly all American-made planes and we're not giving them any more replacement parts. So they're going like, not only going, you know, reducing their economy, they're going backwards. So they're, I mean, I just saw an economist say that within two or three years, they will have lost the gains they've made in the last 37 years. And it will be like going back in time, like going to Cuba, you know, where they still have cars from the 1950s. Oh, let's, Russia's going to be like permanently affixed and then start going backwards because they can't even repair the modern 
about planes that they have and stuff like that, and technology and computers. And I don't think anybody should have a have be gleeful about that, but we have to punish them for what they're doing so they stop doing what they're doing, right? It's the, the international economy, and I'm you know, I'm not an economist, but it's tied together. So we want everybody to do well, everybody. So it doesn't help the world to significantly depress a huge section of it. So I, I don't think anybody should be happy about this happening, but it's it's like punishment that we had no choice because you can't allow a country to do this, period. And if, if, if we're okay with that, if any country is okay with that, maybe they could be next. Maybe they could be next. And then they could wish that other countries would come to their aid and those countries could do the same thing and, and, and pretend like yeah. it's not their problem. It's everybody's problem. Yeah. It is definitely a global issue right now we're battling with. But Mick, I know we're running out of time. It was so good to have you back on Global News Watch, which is one of our Media Mavens podcast segments with you every month. We are going to stay in touch with you. I know there's a lot to unpack here. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more by the time we get through mid-May. But Marge and I definitely want you back on the show. We did get another update from you. Great. It was posted. But until then, we will talk to you again in a few more weeks for another update. Marjorie, thank you so much for another good podcast. And Mick, Thanks, it was, sir. Thanks, Thanks Mick. Mick, it yeah. was so Great good having you on. And we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, everybody. All right, Sarah. Thank you for joining us for Global News Watch. To find more podcasts and to learn more about our host and guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for this special podcast report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.